The following program may contain explicit language. It's Friday, August 14th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Mike Pence laid down some vice president on vice presidential nominee Smack today. Or maybe it was Snack. Senator Kamala Harris said she would change the dietary guidelines of this country to reduce the amount of red meat Americans can eat. The audience, they're mooing like cows to make clear where red meat comes from. But let's attend to the roasting Mike Pence is about to oversee. Well, I've got some red meat for you. We're not going to let Joe Biden and Kamala Harris cut America's meat. Mike Pence working his meat overtime for that killer meat burn. We're not going to let them cut America's meat. America shall continue to swallow its meat whole and like it. Of course, Kamala Harris, not Kamala, by the way, knows that revenge, like potato salad, is a dish best served cold. So don't be surprised if she fillets Meaty Mike in the days to come. If you're worried about one party affecting your meat consumption, I'd look at the one who refused to extend benefits, which would allow American families actually to afford meat. The Trump administration is bragging about bringing back incandescent light bulbs, but they won't give you any assistance to actually pay your electric bills. They'll say, bring back better dishwashers, but good luck on being able to afford an appliance. Instead of President Trump worrying about the amount of water coming out of a shower head, maybe we should all be a little worried about whatever it is leaking out of his head. Seriously, though, and I earnestly believe this, we have close to 170,000 people dead from a very real pandemic. And these guys are running an electoral campaign based on the other side's imaginary plans to curtail future meat consumption. Don't worry, they say. I'm here for what you need as an American, a wetter shower and an older light bulb. My God, the inanity, it's just sad. Sadder still is that it's not rare and almost never well done. On the show today, I spiel about the likely representative from Georgia, who as of now, hasn't voiced a belief in the lizard people, but then again, we haven't found all of her old social media postings. But first, actor Kyle MacLachlan was plucked from near obscurity to star in Dune, which started a lifelong collaboration with director David Lynch. MacLachlan has the jawline of a leading man, but there's something going on inside the eyes, which gives you a little pause. In the new film, Tesla, he stars as Nikolai Tesla's rival, Thomas Edison. It's one of the couple of historic roles he's taken on lately. An interesting talk with Kyle MacLachlan up next. Tesla is a new movie by the director Michael Almereda. Interestingly, Almereda has been working on this since 1981. And I would think in those almost 30 years since, the popular perception of Tesla has changed enormously, Tesla the man. So now the biopic starring Ethan Hawke probably has a different resonance than it did, I don't know, before the turn of the century when he was an obscure name or just uh, the name of a hair rock band. 
One of the stars of this movie is Kyle McLaughlin, who plays Thomas Alva Edison. And Kyle joins me now. Thank you. Thanks thanks for coming on, Kyle. I'm so happy to be here, Mike. Thank you for having me. So I have to say that I love Thomas Alva Edison. And (laughs) I think there has been a little bit of a backlash to him for, you know, reasons. I don't know. He did electrocute that elephant one time. But there was a time for a large part (laughs) of the latter half, uh, the middle and latter half of the 20th century, when he was widely regarded as one of the greatest Americans. And I don't think he's been canceled or anything, but I think that kind of has faded. And I was wondering if coming into this project, you had any perceptions or conceptions of the man and his place in the American imagination. You know, I, I, too, I too had heard that. I knew uh, what you're speaking, that there was a kind of a, maybe a bit of a backlash against him. And thankfully, our director, Michael Almereda, wasn't interested in, in a good and an evil, in a way, making Edison the, the villain of the piece. I mean, everyone in the film, pretty well-rounded, I think, in terms of characters. You know, there's there's the things that we, the, the noble side of, of everyone, and then there's a side that's that's not, you know? And uh, and I think in, in Edison's case, um, you know, you mentioned the electrocution, and, and these were these were experiments at the time. They were, try, they were trying to figure out what this whole electricity thing was, and if there's any, if there was any competition, really, it was, it was the alternating current versus the direct current. Um, direct current, of course, represented by Thomas Edison and alternating current uh, by Nikola Tesla, you know. And so that was kind of where they they set up the, the playing field. But I was happy that it, that Michael wasn't interested in that. And it was more about the really about sort of let's let's learn a little bit about each of these men and kind of how they bumped around into each other in this, you know, in a, in a transformative period of time in American history, or in, in the world, in world history, actually, with the creation of this new with new electricity. So it must be pretty satisfying as an actor to play a character like that, where there is a lot of nuance uh, as to good and evil, especially when it's a real character, because that's actually how life goes. But on the other hand, I would imagine you also really enjoy inhabiting those David Lynchian worlds where good and evil is really stark. But maybe the difference is when you're doing something that owes some fealty to historical figures versus when you're doing something that's kind of creating a, a parable or a fictional universe. Yeah, very true. Um, in in the universe, in David Lynch's universe, there, there's a there's a strong definition between or defi- dividing line, I should say, between good and evil. And uh, you know, I was uh, had so much fun in the in the previous uh, Twin Peaks, being able to actually play both sides of that. I wasn't sure I would actually be able to pull it off, to be honest. But I was very pleased with the result. And with David's help, I think we created something kind of unusual there. One of the great things I think, as I work through some of the historical figures, and I've, I've also got a, an eight-part uh, series coming out about where I play FDR, is simply the research. I mean, these people are fascinating, and, and I, as I've gotten older, I think history becomes, as, I, <laughs> as we all become more historical ourselves, um, history become, becomes more interesting and, and fascinating, whereas when I was in you know, junior high, high school, college, eh, it didn't really hold much allure for me. But the research is, was really fun to do and to, and, and to learn about the, these men and put, put, you know, try to place myself in their head you know, and trying to figure out what was driving them, what were the motivators. 
um, why they did what they did. And that as an actor is that that's just a, you know, that's one of the benefits, I guess. So when you play FDR, people obviously have a pretty strong idea of maybe his speaking habits, his mannerisms. And I know he was uh, actually very intent on managing public perception. Still, lot of tape, lot of audio tape. He's a known quantity. So I would guess that you have to be somewhat true. With Edison, there's, there's film of him. You can, if you choose to, ape his mannerisms, but you're not as obliged to. So to how, to what extent do you want to be accurate to the accurate Edison? And to what extent do you feel, okay, I could use that or I could discard that more than you would a very well-known historical character like FDR? You know, in both cases, I look at their movement through space, the mannerisms, the method of speaking. And, and again, I'm looking for what's the what are the emotions the feelings the thoughts that 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 are being transmitted through that physical action so uh how does edison cup his ear in particular when he can't hear something you know he was almost completely deaf and 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 how does that affect his his how he deals with people how he how he looks at people um how he feels in a situation does he is he short with people because he's you know he because he just doesn't care he just takes too, it's too much effort for him to to actually hear what they're saying you know what how, how does it affect his temperament you know his emotions and so and that was true both in edison and in fdr um as you said fdr was really super aware and conscious of how he was perceived um never wanted to be uh, crippled, it was okay to be lame, you know, just those little distinctions, um, and, and super, super conscious of that, kind of almost uh, modern, I think, in a strange way. I mean, you think of how people are so, with our social, uh, you know, faces, uh, how we present ourselves to the world, and he was really, really aware of that. Um, Edison, yeah, not so much. Gruff didn't really care. There's some terrific footage of him moving through space. Um, you know, he was kind of a bull, you know, and um, he was certainly an inventor, but a lot of it was just perseverance, really, in his case. It's like, if this doesn't work, then try this. And if that doesn't work, then try this. That's the way they finally came up with the, with the filament that they ultimately used in the light bulb. It was just really just over 600 different materials were tried, trial and error. And, and that's how they move forward. It's just, you know, very plodding, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, and that's the, that's how great characters are made, that their strength is also their fatal flaw. And with Edison, it's that he's exactly what you said, like bullheaded and moving through space. So that is what allowed him to come up with these great inventions, but it also was his undoing to some extent with the iron mining and especially with his adherence that DC current was going to be the way that we got our electricity in the United States. Yeah, yeah, fully believed in it. One of the other challenges about that is, is okay, so we recognize it. That's pretty obvious about, the, his, about that side of his nature. What's the opposite? Does it exist? How does it exist? So that's always, as, as part of the actor's journey, I'm always looking for that as well. And he did indeed wrote during a summer a diary when he was staying with some friends. And I read through that, and it was full of flights of fancy and sort of romanticizing and and really strong insights into people and humor and very self-deprecating. I mean, it was, it was like a side of him that we don't know. 
we don't know about unless you've read this little this little book about of his diary. And I found that fascinating. And I thought, okay, so we want to lay a little bit of that in here somewhere. And you know, in, in fact, Michael really helped me by creating a couple of the scenes. I don't know how much I want to talk about them, but there were scenes in there that the narrator then comes in and sort of, you know, sets the record straight. You know, Eve Houston, of course, plays uh, Anne Morgan, and she sort of narrates the whole thing. And so she sort of says, well, you know, <laughs> so. So we play with the idea of these flights of fancy that he that that uh, as part of Edison's nature. But I do believe it was there. Maybe not, you know, out something he showed to the world that much. But but it, but it did exist. Right. So and we should tell the listeners. Um, I don't think it's giving too much away. It seems like a straight kind of biopic, a historical biopic. Everyone's wearing the fashion of the day. But then there are these flourishes. Let's say a little bit of naughtiness and playing with the form, purposeful anachronisms, some maybe false narration. You get, in fact, to, again, I don't want to step too much on it, but you get to play a scene that's more of a what-if scene. Is that any different from an, a- as it, from an acting perspective? Playing a scene that you know is going to quickly be undercut as that didn't happen? Do you play it a little less honestly than you would uh, the scene in a regular, a regular narration? Not at all. No winking at the audience. It was absolutely dead as if it had happened. You know, it's like, what if this had happened? And we sort of play it straight through. And then, so you let, you let the discovery, the audience discover something. I mean, hopefully they, we fool them, you know, for a good length of time until finally it pushes the point of uh, reality uh, where you're like, okay, uh, when he pulls <laughs> You know, when Edison does, you know, he 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 interacts with 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 uh, with a, a device that's uh, obviously not from the era, and you're like, okay, you know, and you realize, ah, okay, uh, but it also connects the dots a little bit. So it, it, again, it's part of Michael's, you know, Michael Almereta's brain. You know, he just came up with these sort of interesting twists and turns, and uh, which is what makes it working with him uh, so interesting. You know, his storytelling is very special. With 10 minutes left in the movie, and we've established, it plays with narrative. It's not a straightforward biopic, but it does operate that way. There is a, let us say, a big break with convention that I won't give away. Um, <laughs> do you, you're, not, you're, not, you're not in that scene, but, you know, you read the script, you want to be in the movie. Does that mean that, like, you're signing off on that and saying, okay, I think this is going to work? Or is it like, hey, you've worked with David Lynch so long, let's not doubt perhaps even the very... Uh, eccentric taste of a director that you have faith in what's your reaction to that choice to be honest i don't remember reading it in the original script i don't remember reading that scene (laughs) i'm now questioning whether it was there or if maybe it was something that sort of came up you know the movie you know the film is it's in i know there's independent but this is independent with a capital i i mean we had no money you know it was the fact that we had costumes that looked i mean it was people did amazing work that, that and you know i mean our dressing rooms were basically just curtained off with a cot you know i mean that that was that was it kind of on the set where we were shooting i mean this was you know really low budget and i remember watching it for the first time and then suddenly there was ethan and i'm doing you know we were talking about i don't want to give it away and i was like whoa i said that's wow, what an interesting choice. You know, I was like, am I with this or am I not? But I had sort of a similar reaction to it. And then after I sort of sat with it for a while, I was like, no, I think it's okay. Why not? You know, I mean, I did sort of, yeah, we're talking about the same themes in some ways. And, um, you know, whether the movie jumps to the shark at that moment, I mean, I think it's open to interpretation. Um, <laughs> but I kind, of, I kind of went with it. I kind of went with it, to be honest. 
I'll let, let me ask you about a couple other roles. Are you uh, excited that they're doing a remake of Dune? I am. I am. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I don't know if excited is the word, but I'm really looking for I love the books. I've loved the books since I was 15 and I read them for the first time and I read them like almost yearly until uh, and then I was cast when I was 23. Um, so it's a little strange. I mean, I don't think my my story is, is, is one of a kind. You know, many people love the books, particularly at that age. But the fact that I was just a yeah, I was a Dune fanatic. And uh, and then, and, you know, and suddenly, you know, here you are. Um, doing it and uh, but but it's a challenging piece I mean my god you know um, we tried to do it in a movie it was two hours and 16 minutes and you know there's uh, it's all over the place I mean I think it's visually stunning I think it's interesting you know I don't it doesn't necessarily succeed in, in telling the story or capturing it captures you know some of the environment but it's just so vast and uh, so I'm so I'm very curious to see what uh, Villeneuve's take on it is i'm sure there'll be you know there's many things that have to be just cut and just discarded sadly because there's just not enough time i always thought that it would be a fantastic kind of in the in the way of the game of thrones you know you have these seasons you know you have have 10 shows or something like that but you actually break it down and you and you tell the whole thing but you do it you know at that scale you know and uh Because the political machinations are really interesting. And oh you can only touch on them a bit in the, you know, the movie has to, most, most of the attention has to be riding sandworms. Yeah, you want the action and the adventure and who are these Fremen people and where they live in the desert and what's going on. But I mean, there's so much. So I, I just love the world. I love the books. I'm, I'm curious to see what they can do. I'm curious to see with, with, you know, because this, I mean, we did ours in 83, shot in 83. And of course, the technology was primitive compared to what we have today so yeah i mean did you have to wear blue contact lenses would they have done that in post-production today no you know we tried that i was the guinea pig on a lot of those as was Raffaella. we put them in and they you know because i wore contacts and i was like nope um you know no way and there was really that again the sophistication wasn't there to do that but really it was more trying to do they had a rotoscope everything because it's the blue with the blue so it's the white of your eyes is actually blue and there's just no way to sort of i mean now you can do it you could wrap the eye but then you're, you know you're fighting all the dust and the sand and uh, you know it's not acting it's just you know struggling at that point struggling yeah exactly right and which and we did a fair amount of that just shooting outdoors in deserts in these rubber suits and so on. um but gosh what a great what a great novel and what, what a you know that's what i'm looking forward to it very much Another role I want to ask you about, Showgirls. Okay, maybe not uh, your favorite role in retrospect, but uh, I heard an interview you give where, where you said, at the time, it seemed pretty good. Do you think that could have been a very different movie if it was, I don't know, edited a different way or conceived of differently, given the raw material? I don't know. I don't know how. I mean, you, you read it and you and you go, wow, this is, you know, it's pretty dark and it's very... You know, it's there's a just a lot of you know bad behavior you know going on, <laughs> and uh, and at the time I was you know I said well, God I love Paul Verhoeven I you know RoboCop I loved it you know what I mean Basic Instinct I loved you know and and Joe Esterhaus had written written a screenplay and you know at at the top of this game and so you're kind of like all right well I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in with these guys you know I mean this looks this looks kind of interesting Gina Gershon I knew and and uh, still friendly with Gina. Um, and I was like, all right, you know, and, and to be honest, it was at a period of time in my career when, you know, I've been playing certain kind of roles and, you know, you starting to feel a little kind of hemmed in, you're like, ah, I'm going to try something completely different. And you, (laughs) you know, I may have cast the net a little bit wide on the, you know, in that one, but it was, it was something that, um, 
you know, uh, it was a gamble, obviously, you know, and, and, and crazy thing is, you know, we were, we were shooting uh, in um, South Lake Tahoe, I think. I think that's where we were for a lot of it. I remember we were in a giant, uh, uh, you know, theater that they had there and we had to get out by a certain time because Carrot Top, was going to be coming in to perform. <laughs> and he had to start, and he had a, he had a, he had a so we had a, we had a, a, a done by date we had to finish up with. <laughs> I mean, the load time for that guy's props must have been uh, massive. Yeah. Oh God. I mean, it was great. But but at the same time, I'm like, I'm I'm wandering around. I'm watching them choreograph the show. They've got you know really solid choreographer choreographers from Los Angeles, and they're putting together this whole Vegas show. And I'm looking at it from the audience. I'm going, geez, this looks pretty good. The volcano shooting fire and, you know, scantily clad women and men running around. I said, yeah, this looks like a show. This is what it would be, you know. And you think, okay. And meanwhile, you know, when I wasn't working, I was also sneaking off to ski because the, that winter, you know, in, um, all around Tahoe, was, snow was fantastic. So I was, I was kind of half paying attention, half not paying attention until I saw it for the first time. And then I was, oh, boy. Kyle McLaughlin could be driving down the FDR Drive, take a right, go to the Con Ed building, and know that he's played two of the roles of the proper nouns in that sentence. Quite an amazing accomplishment. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kyle. (laughs) What a pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me on. And now the spiel. You probably have heard of Marjorie Taylor Greene. It looks like West Georgia, Northwest Georgia, will have as its U.S. member of Congress a woman who runs the full alphabet of nuttiness. QAnon, NRA, AR-15s, oh, and a little MS-13. MS-13 was basically like, they were the kind of the henchmen of the Obama administration. They did a lot of the dirty work. Seth Rich. Seth Rich was murdered by two MS-13 gang members. That's what I mean by dirty work. You're a fool to do that dirty work, or believe it, but Marjorie Greene has a lot of fools in her district. I base that on the fact that they voted for a woman who says stuff like this. We had witnessed 9-11, the terrorist attack um, in New York, and the plane that uh, crashed in Pennsylvania, and the so-called plane that crashed into the Pentagon. It's odd. There's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. But anyways, I won't, I'm not going to dive into the 9-11 conspiracy. Yeah, kind of did. Enough to prove the unstated thesis. Your insuitability to the corridors of power. Though there are institutions I could think of that would warrant Green's inclusion. They're governmental minus the govern. But voters of Georgia's 16th beg to differ, leaving the rest of us simply begging. By a margin of 43,000 to 32,000, Green beat her primary challenger, John Cowan. Now, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to see the racism all over the claims that she's making. When she's not blathering on homemade videos, she's actually spending money on ads that say things like this. The Antifa mobs and BLM thugs want to erase our history and tear down our monuments. Like I said, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to see Marjorie Greene for what she is. But as luck would have it, John Cowan is a brain surgeon. The voters decided he is not qualified enough to rebut a raving loon. Perhaps Greene had a more sophisticated message than I'd realized. I don't know. To the non-racists, she offers conspiracy theories. 
to the members of the electorate who don't care about 9-11 fanfic and Seth Rich alternative histories. She just lays out what's wrong with the other races. But the generations of black and Hispanic men, do you want to know what holds them down? Gangs. Games? Wait, you're talking hopscotch? Pokemon? Huh? Gangs. Being in gangs and dealing drugs. Oh, gangs. Being in gangs and dealing drugs is what holds them down. The lack of education is what hold, holds them down. That's, that's not a, a white person thing. I can name one white person who doesn't seem that educated. They, they tell them, they tell the young men in their communities, don't go to school. Don't you, no, don't you, don't you move out of this, out of this project. Don't you move out of this community. You join this gang. Yes, that is why they don't move out of the projects. Lots of people having to make that tough choice between a three-bedroom condo with amenities, you know, not a full-eaten kitchen, but a breakfast nook. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, gangs. Yeah, I do remember season two of The Wire. Bodie was like, well, Owings Mills, fine school district, but property taxes, I shall commit myself to this gang. Though, to be fair, in The Wire, they did say this. Shit, some things just stay the same, man. I mean, the game is the game. So maybe it was games. Who knows? Let's hear out the final thoughts on this issue. Future member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene. The gangs are holding them back. It's not white people. It's, it's crazy. Fact check, yes. I have detected some craziness. And the crazy thing about her particular flavor of crazy is not the crazy stuff. It's the ignorant, wrong, and racist stuff. But in case you wanted it, there is plenty of cuckoo bananas business, i.e. Q, anon. Now, there's a couple of things that happened. One of them was uh, when Q signs off, he puts three little crosses in a row, three little crosses, and that's how he signed off. Now, he signed off with three crosses in a row um, on November 6th, and within a matter of minutes, President Trump, in his tweet right after that on November 6th, he put, uh, it was seven minutes later, Trump put three little crosses on his tweet. And it, it was not, it, it, was, it was just more than a coincidence. It was really interesting. Three crosses, tres equis, and a four-alarm fire of gaga. QAnon, COVID, conspiracies, some thoughts on the Las Vegas shooter, which she suggested was orchestrated not by a shooter, but powerful forces beyond the abilities of just one man. How do you get avid gun owners and people that support the Second Amendment to give up their guns and go along with anti-gun legislation? How do you do that? Maybe you accomplish that by performing a mass shooting into a crowd that is very likely to be conservative, very likely to vote Republican. I know you get it. She has expressed multiple, multiple theories that are unhinged and you would hope disqualifying. I do think there's some value in playing them all in one place so you get the idea that this isn't just one misstatement or one mistake or one month where she fell in with the wrong crowd. It is consistent that she is a florid conspiracist par excellence. And still, no more than 32,000 West Georgians had a problem with that. That was Dr. John Cowan's vote. Green, as I said, got 43,000. Now, there are 700,000 people 
give or take, per every congressional district. So 43,000 out of 700,000, it's about 6% of the population. It's not shockingly low or exceedingly low for a primary in American politics, but it is low. It is just, objectively speaking, a small number of people to give such a powerful decision to, to allow them to elect such a demonstrably unqualified, and I'm going to say unwell person, to ascend to a major position. I mean, 100,000 more voters voted in Ilhan Omar's primary than Marjorie Greene's. Yet both women will almost certainly be colleagues in the 117th Congress. Today, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution asked, who's crazy, Marjorie Taylor Greene or her Georgia voters? I'll throw another party in there, the system. These spots in government are too important to allow 6% of the people to decide for the rest of us. I don't know if somewhere out there, there is a more functional version of true democracy that would necessarily do the work of weeding out the wing nuts. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of odd ducks among us, but I've got to think that it's hard to find a random or even non-random, a geographically based grouping of almost a million Americans where the majority are pleased to send to Washington a person with the obsessions and concerns of Marjorie Greene, especially at this time. Because right now, in this moment, we should be focusing on getting the bat flu contained, not elevating the batshit insane. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist, reminiscent of Kyle McLaughlin in Blue Velvet. He has a good ear, I found. Margaret Kelly is The Gist's other producer. I have to tell you, her transcriptions of long interviews, they're invaluable, but sometimes inscrutable. She is the mysterious log lady. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast. Her people crafted barrels that were suited for long valleys. Adele Cooper, if you will. A Dale Cooper, if you will. The just fun fact, David Bowie played Tesla in the movie The Prestige, and David Bowie also played FBI agent Philip Jeffries in Twin Peaks, opposite Kyle MacLachlan. Of course, Bowie's voice was dubbed when he was depicted as a glowing orb near a tea kettle in Twin Peaks The Return, but I fear I have already said too much. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.